Hey, good morning, everybody. It's another great day to be alive. I'm Gonzo, your host. And if you want to master digital marketing so you can grow your business or start your own digital marketing agency, you're in the right place. Every Tuesday, we talk with experts in order to learn how to be a successful digital marketer by using Facebook ads, SEO, email lists, and all things digital marketing. Follow along with me as I build my own digital agency using the tips I get from the guests on my show. Make sure you tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. for the DMT Masterclass. And if you want extra content about how to grow a business, a podcast, or your income, make sure you tune into the bonus episode Fridays, where I interview some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. My guest today is Paige Arnoff Fenn. She's the founder and CEO of Mavens and Moguls, a global marketing and branding firm that helps organizations get more clients and scale up through effective storytelling. Her client list includes companies like Microsoft, Virgin, The New York Times Company, and Colgate. She graduated from Stanford University and Harvard Business School, and she serves on several boards and is a popular speaker and columnist who writes for Entrepreneur and Forbes. In today's episode, we talk about how marketing has changed over the past 20 years and where it looks like it's going in the future, plus how to stand out from your competition and how to succeed in business even when everything is crashing down around you. So if you're ready to build new skills, grow your income, and change your family tree, keep listening to the Cost of Success podcast. Paige, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to work with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's very rare that I will be able to speak uh, on a daily basis with somebody who has gone both to Stanford and to Harvard and has been a vice president of multiple different companies. So this is really exciting. Uh, just looking back at your, your education and your history there, which one was tougher, Stanford or Harvard? I think the hardest part of both is getting in. Once you're there, it's really not as hard as you think. Um, it's the dirty little secret. So they were both amazing. If I had to do it again, I'd do it exactly the same way. I'd be an undergraduate at Stanford and get an MBA at Harvard. Yeah. I think I did it exactly the right way. Well, originally when you were you know, a teenager, had it always been a plan to become an entrepreneur? And what was the original idea of what you had as a little girl for what you wanted to be? So very good question. It was the furthest from my mind. So my dad and both my grandfathers were all commercial bankers and they were all presidents of banks. And I was very good at math. And I thought I would be a banker, just like my dad and my grandpa's. I always loved business. We would sit around the table after meals and they would talk about business. You know, they got the Wall Street Journal and Fortune and Forbes. So I really wanted to go work in business, maybe banking. And my dad had gotten a Harvard MBA. So even as young as maybe two or three years old, people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'd expect me to say like a nurse or a teacher. And I'd put my hands on my hips and I'd say, I want to run a bank and be a Harvard MBA. Like, I really just thought that was what I was going to do with my life. And honestly, when I look at like when I was in business school and I looked at who my role models were, they were people like Meg Whitman, Ursula Burns, you know, women who ran major Fortune 500 global companies that was the career I thought I was being prepared for. Um, when I graduated from college, it was the same year that Michael Douglas won the Oscar for the first Wall Street movie. 
And I saw it and I got completely hooked. So my first job out of college, I went to Wall Street and I worked in that crazy environment on the sales and trading floor. So I thought I was being the renegade of my family instead of being a commercial banker. I went into investment banking, but I realized pretty quickly, I didn't really love the work. It really didn't kind of make my heart sing. It paid extremely well. Uh, it paid for business school basically, but I knew I wanted to do a career switch once I got back, I, I made a two-year commitment, which I kept. But after two years, I left to go get an MBA. And my summer internship in business school was in marketing. And I've been in marketing ever since. And marketing is a much better fit for my interests, my personality. And I love being able to kind of balance my right brain and my left brain. You know, finance is pretty analytical. And I think some financial people are creative in maybe a dangerous way. They get a little creative with spreadsheets and the numbers. But um, I love the fact that in marketing, having an analytical training is a real bonus because there's a lot of marketing that's kind of more analytical, marketing analytics and data driven. But there's also a lot of creative outlets. So marketing is a much better fit for me personally and professionally. And um, so my first foray into marketing was in big Fortune 500 companies. I worked at Procter & Gamble. I worked at Coca-Cola in marketing. And I think when I joined those companies, I still thought like, ooh, I want to be a CEO here one day. But I think being in those big corporate environments, it can be a little stifling. And um, I was getting a little itchy and antsy. And the internet started to kind of take off in the late 90s. And um, I ended up leaving my kind of big corporate cushy job as assistant chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola in 1997. And I kind of got bitten by the dot-com bug. And I went and joined my first startup as the head of marketing. I was chief marketing officer of a brand no one had ever heard of before out in Los Angeles in the music and entertainment space. And we raised about 30 or $40 million. All of it was for marketing. We went public in 1999. We were sold to Yahoo. It was like a wild ride. Then I got recruited to be the chief marketing officer of another startup. And about a year and a half later, we ended up getting sold to Bertelsmann, which was fantastic. And then I did another startup as the head of marketing. And we went public and we were sold to a bigger public company. So I, I joke that those are like my three base hits. I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. I didn't work for LinkedIn and Google and Facebook. I did not make $2 billion, but I did make a little money three times and I had a ball. And I helped kind of establish brands that almost were invisible and make them household names. Um, Yahoo Music. Inc.com in the business to business space and Zipcar. I was the first chief marketing officer of all of those. And it was great. But then 9-11 hit and marketing got kind of wiped out across the board. Um, and uh, because I had headed up marketing at three venture backed startups, I knew a lot. Of, and one of those startups was in LA, two were in Boston. So I had great contacts in the venture capital community private equity folks. And when 9-11 hit, all the companies pretty much fired their marketing departments because 
people were really nervous. The economy was crazy. The stock market plummeted. People were trying to conserve cash. But a lot of the folks that I, I had gotten to know at the startups called me and said, we need help. Our, our portfolio's in trouble. We don't have a marketing department. Could you come and help us? And my first instinct, Anthony, was really, you know, I'm not a consultant. I never worked at McKinsey. I never worked on the agency side. And by the way, I suck at PowerPoint. Like I'm, I'm the chief marketing officer. I'm the person that does the work. They're like, yeah, that's what we need. We need people to do the work. I don't need fancy PowerPoints. So I started calling all my kind of favorite people I had worked with at Coke, um, at P&G, at those early startups. Everybody had just gotten laid off. Everybody was available. So I had people, I had projects, and I said, all right, I'm going to put them together. And I called the women, the marketing mavens, and the guys, the marketing moguls. And my kind of working name was mavens and moguls. We had people, we had projects, and we, you know, we just kind of started working as a team. I built the website over a weekend with a college buddy of mine who wanted to learn how to build websites. That website stuck around for about five years. Um, I never wrote a business plan. If you had met me in business school, I'm not even sure we used the word entrepreneur, but you know, back in the day. So it was not on my radar at all. It was a big opportunity post 9-11 where people needed help. I had the right skill set. I had the right network. And we just hung out a shingle. I never dreamed I'd be doing it 20 years later. But this is actually the, the longest job I've ever had in my career. All those jobs I told you about, my longest job before this was three and a half years. So I guess I'm officially unemployable at this point. <laughs> I don't think I could go work for anybody else again. Um, but I love it. I love the autonomy, the flexibility, the variety, and I'm still having fun. So go figure. Do you think that your approach to business for Mavids and Moguls was different only in the sense that when most people start out a new company, they're having to bootstrap everything. Previous to this, you had had some financial success coming from these startups that had been sold. So you had a little bit of money that finances, I, I can imagine, weren't necessarily the biggest concern when you were starting out. So do you think that that helped you to be more free and take more risks when you started out with Mavens and Moguls? So it's, it's an excellent point. So it's a professional service business that I started out of the third floor of my house. Um, so I, I bootstrapped it. I didn't take on any friends and family money. I self-funded the business. Um, I had a network. We started with about, I don't know, 10, 12 people that were all independent contractors, not employees. Um, you know, we were pretty scrappy. I wasn't paying rent. I wasn't paying overhead. I wasn't paying salary. When we had projects, people got paid. So, you know, having worked for three venture-backed startups, I understood what it meant to use other people's money, what the trade-offs of that was. And you're right, you know, because I had had some financial wherewithal. I was not in a position where I had to worry that much. It was a fairly low... Uh, low cost business to start and ramp up. You know, I paid to incorporate 
Um, I paid, you know, for some, you know, maybe I upgraded my computer and printer and things like that, but it, you know, it did not break the bank by any means. And I actually had clients before I admitted I was even starting a company. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of cash flow positive from the get-go. And I feel very fortunate that, you know, we were in a very uh, lucky position that I didn't have to take on work to cover a monthly nut or overhead. Every project we took on was because we really loved the business. We felt like we could help them. And that's a great position to be in because you're not desperate. I think they can tell you're not desperate. And I felt like I had a rock star team of marketing people because they were the people that I had worked with earlier in my career that a lot of them I had hired before. And I knew their expertise. I knew they were great. And every piece of business led to more business and more referrals. So it was an awesome way to build a business. And I feel like, you know, because we are competing with kind of everybody and nobody, um, you know, when we started, there were marketing uh, companies, there were ad agencies, PR agencies, but there really weren't people with our credentials that were working independently. Now it's, it's hard to even go back 20 years and remember it was before all the sharing economy, people didn't share their homes, they didn't share their cars, they didn't share their sporting equipment or their boats or their bikes. You know, we were pretty early in the kind of sharing resources. People were much more comfortable outsourcing legal or accounting, but people didn't really outsource their marketing per se. They would hire an agency or hire an individual. So Harvard Business School actually wrote two cases on our company about three years after we started, um, saying that we were kind of a pioneer in this space. And now, like, you don't even blink. Like, now no one even thinks twice about it. But at the time, it was considered kind of a little bit out of the box. So we, we had a bit of a first mover advantage, which helped. And like I said, the credentials of my team, because I had worked for big global brands, my network was all over the world. We immediately had people interspersed all over the country and major metro areas overseas. And our network was really rock solid. And we could form teams and be scrappy. And, you know, if you had a computer and a cell phone, there wasn't Zoom back then. But we could do a lot of work virtually if the client wanted us to get on a plane and come in person. That was great, but it wasn't required. And we really hit the ground running. And each, you know, when we started working for a lot of the big VC firms and private equity folks, Every time we did something for one portfolio company, they'd come back and say, well, we have two more that could use the same thing. So we got a lot of referral business. And I think we priced ourselves very competitively. Again, when you don't have a lot of overhead and you're competing with bigger kind of legacy agencies, 
that are always trying to upsell or cross sell. If you don't need PR, you don't need to meet my PR people. If all you want is market research or a logo, I am more than happy to help you do that. But I'm not trying to cover my overhead. Like that's a very different value proposition. And it's a very different conversation you're having. The clients feel like you're just trying to solve their problems. They're not being sold to. And I think because everybody in my group, like me, was a client in a previous life. We're not professional agency people. So we're not always trying to put together a fancy PowerPoint or, you know, we're spending their money the way we would spend their money when we were in their chair and we'd already had their jobs. So if we wanted their jobs, we'd go out and do it, but we kind of liked what we were doing. And it became a very comfortable conversation for our clients because they felt like we were, our heads and our hearts were much more aligned with their goals and their needs because we used to be them. So we got it. Yeah. You, you came at it from a different perspective than totally anybody else in the market. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When you were able to get that start, you had built up these giant, you had, like you said, worked with fortune 500 companies, you had had that background. So what is the difference between somebody who works with a fortune 500 company versus somebody who works with a smaller agency? Is it just that you have this unlimited budget to kind of do whatever you want? And long-term, what is it that the company is always trying to, to portray? What is their brand that they're trying to get across to their audience versus somebody smaller? So again, you know, my corporate career was mostly in the 90s. Um, and back then at P&G or at Coke, if you wanted to do market research, it had to be kind of statistically significant. It would take literally six to 12 months. These are mass marketed brands and you're canvassing, you know, 18 to 25 year old men, you know, in different parts of the country. And, you know, when you're testing your advertising, you're testing it in focus groups and, you know, online, you're doing all these things very uh, professionally, very deeply. When I worked at the startup companies, the first startup company I worked for in Los Angeles was in the music and entertainment space. And it was an online magazine. This was before high-speed internet existed. So we used to send out these CD-ROMs through the mail that were these really interactive, very cool. It became Launch Music. We, we were, uh, I mean, it was named Launch and we got acquired by Yahoo. It became Yahoo Music. So um but it was a really fun business, you know, in the music and entertainment space. But when we did market research, we were in Santa Monica, California, which is just blocks from the Third Street Promenade. Anyone that knows the LA market. Literally, my team would come in in the morning with a cup of coffee. We'd take over the conference room. We'd come up with a million different ideas for banner ads or stuff to put in an email. And we would come up with maybe 20 ideas that we liked. And quickly the design team would mock up a bunch of 
creative. And at lunchtime between like 12 and two, a handful of my team would go down to the promenade and they'd stand, you know, every few blocks with clipboards and they'd intercept anybody that looked like they were our target audience. If you were on a skateboard, if you had piercings or tattoos, dyed hair, and we'd stop people and say, hey, can you answer a few questions? We'll give you some CDs. And of course, people would stop. And we'd ask them, which one of these ads do you like? What would you click on? What do you like about this? So we just literally do like intercept advertise, uh, intercept research on our advertising over the lunch hour. We, the, everybody would meet back in the conference room mid-afternoon and we'd compare notes and we'd pick our three best uh, results. And before we went home at night, those would be the ads that we'd put up on the website. And, you know, those are the ones we'd move forward with. The next morning, we'd go back into the conference room and we'd look at the click-through data and we'd see, okay, you could never do that at P&G. That research, you know, would have taken months. And by the time you did it, it would have been irrelevant. Like whatever people liked six months ago, they wouldn't even necessarily like anymore. So we were like iterating in real time constantly. Um, everything was on internet time and it didn't need to be perfect. You know, at PNG, when, you know, when you're running ads in the Super Bowl and on the Olympics, you're spending millions of dollars. The stakes are just much, much higher. With these scrappy internet companies, you know, we could make mistakes. We could course correct the next day. Anything that didn't get clicked on was done. It never happened. Let's go and let's go back and try it again tomorrow. We'll come up with something better. So I think it's just a very different attitude. The truth is, I think a lot of the big companies today are behaving more like the startups. I think they're having to be a lot scrappier. I think they're having to do a lot more in real time. Because like I said, if you field research that you're not going to get back for six to nine months, how relevant is that even going to be anymore? I mean, right. think about the world, how much we've changed in the last year and a half. Yeah. I mean, it's unrecognizable, right? So Absolutely. I think um, we were kind of the canaries in the coal mine in a really good way because, you know, a lot of we've worked for, with some very large Fortune 500 companies at Mavens and Moguls. And I think they love the scrappiness. Like we've had to, um, you know, pitch for business against some very high profile Madison Avenue and big name agencies. And they've hired us in, in certain cases. And I think they like the fact that we've got the big firm experience, but we know kind of how to make it scrappy and resourceful in the new normal. So I think the world is kind of moving in the Mavens and Moguls direction, to be honest. So for, let's talk about the last uh, 12 to 16 months. What has that been like for you in the marketing industry with your clients, with everything going on globally? What has your business and life really been like over the past 12 to 16 months? So it's been a game changer like everybody. So before COVID, 
I was like the networking queen. I mean, I would go to networking events, breakfast events, coffee, lunch. Some nights I would hit two or three different events. I'd go to cocktails at one. I'd, you know, get another one for a speaker and maybe go meet other people for drinks after. I was really into networking. And obviously all of that shut down uh, with the virus. Um, and I also used to do a lot of public speaking, speaking at conferences and trade shows. So that was a big source of my business before the pandemic. When March, so starting it with the beginning of 2020, we had had a really strong January and February. Like we were off to a very strong start and we were just about to kick off one six figure engagement in March and another six figure engagement in April. So for a firm like mine, that's a great piece of business. We were so excited. You know, the first quarter of 2020 was looking gangbusters. Well, obviously in March, everything kind of came to a screeching halt. The client that was kicking off in March, the client that was kicking off in April, both immediately put everything on the back burner. And to be honest, between March and October, it was very slow, very quiet, a little stuff over the transom. I was staying in touch with people, but basically we had to completely pivot our business from a kind of glad handing, you know, very personal, um, you know, meeting people face to face, you know, pressing the flesh to a virtual environment. And, you know, I probably had more Zoom meetings in 15 days in the spring of 2020 than I had had on Skype for a year before the pandemic. I mean, mm -hmm. basically, we started doing everything online, podcasts, webinars, meetings, a lot of virtual events. I was speaking at global conferences online. Um, no one was traveling. No one was getting together. We weren't even really, you know, leaving our house for some of that period. Mm -hmm. And especially here in Boston, because a lot of the um, U.S. COVID started at that Biogen conference here in Boston. So mm -hmm. we were in the East Coast, New York, like we were really ground zero for a lot of the early uh, outbreak. So I wasn't really even leaving my house much, to be totally honest. Right. Um, and my team, we used to get together, even though we're a virtual company, we would get together, you know, the people in Boston would get together, or the different cities. But we were started doing, like a lot of people, virtual cocktails, virtual coffee meetings. And we started doing it with our clients, too. So the people, prospects, and current clients we would just schedule regular activities, you know, updates online, meetings online, pitch meetings online. And we got very comfortable very quickly, mm -hmm. kind of leveraging technology. And the great thing about that is you realize what drove my business were the relationships and you could keep the relationships going by leveraging the new technology. 
Like mm-hmm. no one even knew what Zoom was before the pandemic. Right. And it became like, you know, part of your life yes. in every way. Yes. And, you know, I started doing, I do a lot of Tai Chi and Qigong. I, I knit with people um, and we started knitting on Zoom. We started exercising on Zoom. Like it just became part of my day. And what's great is you don't have to feel isolated. You, you know, you leverage technology to continue building your relationships. Mm-hmm. And we just pivoted. And I would say around the election in November, um, once kind of the dust settled, clients started to surface again. And they thought, you know, the vaccine is coming. I feel like a little more confidence. Um, so I would say the la- the first two months of 2020 were good and the last two months of 2020. Yeah. Were good. So I could tell at the end of the year, you know, the wheels were starting to turn again. And I will tell you, so we're just more than, you know, halfway, what we're on our eighth month of 2021. We have already billed, I don't know, three or four times more this year than I did all of last year. Mm -hmm. So this year's been, knock wood, um, great year. Um, People are back. Um, You know, we didn't lose any business. A lot of stuff got postponed. Right. A lot of stuff. I had a monthly retainer last year that, you know, they'd stretch each month two or three months. So they slowed down. But again, for my business without a lot of overhead, not paying rent, I'm not doing payroll, things slowed down, we can survive. I didn't need a PPP loan. We were fine. But and we're doing great now. But I think a lot of businesses, you know, it was a huge wake up call for my clients you know, they realized the importance of online marketing. You know, they pivoted businesses that were completely dependent on trade shows and physical events have pivoted to online marketing, online activity, online events. So we've all just gotten a lot more scrappy and resourceful and people are learning to survive in the new normal. So I think we're, I think for those of us that got through the last year and a half, our businesses are better because of it. I think we're, we're smarter, we're scrappier. And I think we've learned because we're doing more online, everything you can track, you can measure. And I just think we're all gonna be better off because of it. And unfortunately, this is probably not the last pandemic we're gonna be dealing with. I think we're in a in a new zone now and we're all going to have to kind of create new habits and patterns and practices to get through it. Well, one of the things that you said really stands out and you're talking about how people have realized how important digital marketing is. So would you say just uh, having been in this industry for 20 years plus looking at the future do you think that the space is actually ripe for anybody who is starting to get into digital marketing and trying to help people online? Do you think that there's still plenty of opportunity for those that are just getting started? Absolutely. There are always going to be new tools and technologies. And 
you can't get too wedded to any one platform. I think you have to create, you know, the great thing about marketing is like the marketing basics that I learned back at P&G in 1990 in my very first marketing job, they're all still relevant. I mean, it's about telling great stories, connecting on an emotional level, you know, finding a great value proposition, like the core essence of marketing, the messaging, you know, all of that is still true today. But the tools and technologies change. You know, when I started, there was radio, television, print, and outdoor. That's all, those were the only options. Those were the only line items on your budget. Mm -hmm. Today, there, you know, and on television, you had like not that many channels to deal with. Now, you know, there's just an abundance of platforms and, you know, there's so much out there. There are a million cable and Hulu. Right. And I mean, there's just, there. It, it's overwhelming. But I think you're still seeing people that get the basics right. Um, if you've got the right message, targeting the right audience at the right time, those people are still going to win in the end. And um, the, the beautiful thing today is you don't have to, you know, advertise at the Super Bowl or the Olympics to get noticed. There are a lot of ways to build your brand in a very kind of low budget environment. And, you know, if you look at the advent of influencer marketing, that's been huge. You know, I think when Twitter started, everyone thought that was, you know, the latest, greatest new thing. But there's going to be something new, probably, you know, another new thing this year that's going to make everybody go, wow, how do you think about Clubhouse? Where did that right. come from? I mean, there's always something new, different. And so you definitely, I think, I, I think if you're interested in digital media and digital marketing and you have a new uh, take on it and you have a, a new twist, new energy, new ideas, absolutely. You know, I, th I think, I just, I see the next year being absolutely kind of open to trial and mm. adventure. I mean, I just feel like there's so much to learn. There's so much that we can, we can figure out new ways to grow in the new normal. So I don't think it's saturated even close. Mm. I, I think there are going to be a lot of new opportunities. I mean, Brick and mortar is not going to go away, but when you look at how much they've had to adjust, I mean, whether you're talking restaurants or stores, you know, the whole concept of buy online, pick up in store, that didn't exist really. If it did, it was like kind of an uh, in the kind of background. Now that is a price of entry. People don't necessarily want to go shopping in a store. They might not want to for a while. When you look at the omni-channel um, retail experience, 
people today, some people shop in store, some are on a tablet, some are on a phone, some are on a desktop. You have to be able to make sure that you're offering a great customer experience kind of across every platform, across every touch point. And if you're not baking that omni-channel experience into your retail strategy, you're missing the boat. If I'm at work and I'm looking at something on my laptop and then I want to go back to the shopping cart on my phone, you want to make sure all that information sticks with your, you know, your persona online. And if it drops off, you're missing an opportunity to have a relation, a better relationship and better communication with your customer. That's not like, that is not going to, that's not, we're not going to go backwards. We're only going to go forward. Now that people have had experience doing telehealth, there are a lot of people for a lot of reasons that may not be going to doctors in the way they used to in the past. You know, everything is an opportunity to reevaluate, reconnect, and figure out what is the best way to communicate. What is the best platform? What is the best venue for us to have this conversation? I just don't think everything's going to need to be face-to-face, and people are going to be creative about which technologies are the best ones to use going forward. And I just think there's a ton of opportunity um, in the near future. One of the things that is going to be a little bit different about your story compared to somebody else is the opportunity that you had that you took advantage of when you went to Stanford, you went to Harvard, and you made really amazing connections that were able to help you get into um, positions that you wanted to be in. So for somebody who's just starting out, in this marketing space, they don't have a lot of connections. What would be your advice to somebody to be able to, especially in the world of 2021, to be able to meet people that are going to be beneficial on both ends? So, you know, online is kind of the great equalizer. Yeah, I I feel very fortunate that I went to a great college and a great business school. And that really was an amazing network. I always tell people, Like you can learn the basics in a textbook, the real value of my education or the people and the contacts I made. And they have been invaluable to me both personally and professionally. But there are a lot of ways to connect with people. Um, And online, you know, I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn and you should join groups that are uh, relevant to your career choice, you know, network with people on LinkedIn. In the spirit of full disclosure, I will tell you a a Stanford buddy of mine is the co-founder of LinkedIn. So I was a really early user when they were just starting out. But I really think it's a great platform that everybody, if you're invisible online today, you're you're nobody, like you, Mm -hmm. you don't exist. So you have to have an online persona and it needs to be, you know, your online reputation is everything today. Um, Especially now where our whole life is online. Um, But who you're connected to, 
the kind of things you put out there. I think where people kind of maybe aren't being, uh, they're kind of dropping the ball. You know, you have to remember, you can't be one person on Facebook and another person on Twitter and another per like, I think some people think, you know, they can post crazy pictures, you know, that are not, maybe not, uh, not as socially acceptable, you know, with your friends on Facebook, because right. that's your friend connection. And then they're trying to be really snarky and whatever on Twitter, but on LinkedIn, they're trying to be real buttoned up. It doesn't really work like that. Got because, it. you know, I think your personal brand includes everything online. Mm. So Google yourself and see what pops up. If those like beach bong photos, you know, where you're kind of rip roaring drunk pop up on Facebook, not so not not so good. Or those really snarky, maybe politically incorrect tweets, not so good. Um, yeah, that's, really that's, that's actually a really I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's uh, something that's really important, I think, is uh, in the world of that we're living in that's hyper political with everything. Um, should people just kind of stay away from politics in general if they're trying to run a business because, or, or should they just say, you know what, I, you have to accept me how I am. And if you want to work with me, then that's your choice, but this is who I am through and through. What do you think is the best approach? Do you prefer that ability to see somebody for as authentic as who they are? So I think it's a really personal decision. And I think, you know, everyone has to kind of decide the personal brand they're trying to build. And I know people in both camps. I know a web designer who is very political, very right wing, and they're not uh, shy or bashful about posting things on their personal profiles on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn that support very political right-wing causes, that's gonna turn off a lot of potential clients. And I think you just have to recognize if that's the way you wanna operate, if that's the way you roll, there may be consequences to that. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side, there may be people who feel that way that don't talk that way, but they're having to reconcile in their own kind of personal brand are they willing to kind of hold their tongue or squelch their their preferences just to get the business right um i think for my own kind of brand uh i think i'm kind of light on politics but because i live in massachusetts in a yeah. town called I get it. cambridge Cambridge, they call it the People's Republic of Cambridge. I think people probably have a pretty good sense of how I lean right. if they see me. But that's just not kind of a big uh, part of my personal brand, if you will. Um, I think if, you know, you have to think about the things you want to stand for and be known for. And how is that consistent with your core values? But I think your personal brand means everything today because 
Um, like I said, you know, you don't exist if they can't find you online. And then when they do find you online, what they find out about you is going to brand you, whether, you know, everyone thinks like, oh, I'm not LeBron James. I'm not some famous, you know, singer or politician. I'm not Michael Jordan. I'm not a brand. That's not true. Everybody's a brand. Um, I am a firm believer that, you know, you are the keeper of your personal brand and you need to reinforce the core messages that are kind of, you know, part of your internal moral compass and brand compass in everything you do. It needs to be part of every touch point. You know, you should be able People, if they see you, meet you, hear you speak online, you know, if you have on hold music on your phone, your business card, your website, it should all kind of sync up and tell a consistent story. Otherwise, you're diluting your brand. If you're kind of, like I said, it's very confusing if you're kind of one way in one place and another way in another place you're not building a trusted brand and you're diluting your message. So I, I feel like, you know, I had a marketing professor in business school that said, marketing is everything and everything is marketing. And I used to laugh when he said it, but I, now that I've been doing it for 30 years, I think he's brilliant. I think he's exactly right. And I think your brand is everything. That's, that's what you got. And in the South, I grew up in New Orleans. We have a saying, you got to dance with the date that brung you. And, you know, your brand is, is you. And if that's what got you where you are, you know, it's part of your message. It's part of your story. And you look kind of inconsistent if you're one way in one venue and a completely different way in a different venue. Right. So I, I'm a big believer in building a trusted brand, strong brand, and a consistent brand so that anytime people come across, whether it's an online article, a YouTube video, they hear you speak at something online on a podcast, that it all syncs up, that it's all you. On that point, you where everything is a brand, let's say... It's the, you know, it's the, the last day looking back that you will ever exist on this planet. You know, you're the ripe old age of 105 and you, you, you look back at your life. What do you want people to see as your brand? What do you want to be remembered by and for? Well, that's a heavy question. I mean, I just want to be remembered for kind of, you know, being a force for good in the people's lives who I've touched, that they know that, you know, our time together mattered, our relationship mattered, that we, I cared about them. Um, you know, I had uh, seven people in my family very close to me, my parents, my stepdad, my in-laws, 
my great aunt, uh, sister-in-law, seven people died in six years uh, before the pandemic. You know, it was a really tough period. Um, they were all different ages and decades. And, um, you know, it's like the whack-a-mole game, like one would get sick and then one would die and then another got sick, another died. And, you know, in that group, you had people who were very successful, people who were retired, people who were young, people who were old. And the common denominator in my experience was, you know, nobody on their deathbed wishes that they made more money or they got more promotions. Um, like that's not really what life is about. You just want to spend time with the people you care about, the people you love. You want them to know that they mattered. You want them, their lives to be better in some way because you were part of it. Um, so, you know, I think it, it, I mean, I love what I do professionally, but it's only a part of me. I love having time to spend with people who I care about and that I want the time that we spend together to be special. And I want them to know how important they are to me and hopefully um, that I am to them. So I guess I just want to make sure uh, looking back as a hundred and whatever year old <laughs> um, that my legacy is about you know, having authentic relationships with people that, uh, you know, whose lives that I enriched in some way that, you know, that brought me joy, that I brought them joy. And um, that we had fun together, that we spent time that really mattered. So it's kind of about authenticity, joy, and just being together. I mean, that's really for me, what life's about, you know, sharing, sharing the stuff you love with the people you love. Um, and I think when I was younger, I think I was much more focused on kind of career and success. And, um, you know, the older I get, I think you just realize, you know, you don't need a hundred million dollars to be happy. Um, you don't need to be on the cover of Time Magazine to feel like your life is important. There are a lot of ways to add value and to help people and to leave a lasting impression um, in the people whose lives you touch. So, you know, all those people I was telling you about, a piece of them is always with me. So hopefully a piece of me will be with other people too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a very deep question. So I'll ask you something a little bit more lighthearted before we right, get out good. of it. <laughs> so uh, for those that are new to this world of marketing and new to business and startups, and they want to be successful and they want to build something that they can maybe pass down or, or just be proud of, what are three pieces of advice that you would give to anybody that's new to the business world for having success? Um, so there's so much life advice that's important. Um, number one, you know, it's true what they say in terms of never burn a bridge. You really do want to be nice to people, be kind, and just 
you know, you never know who's ever going to be in a position to help you. So make friends before you need them. Just be nice to people because whether it's the receptionist or the cashier or the guy cutting your lawn or the guy cutting your hair, um, you never know who else's lawn they cut, who else's hair they cut. Um, you know, the receptionist may be able to, you know, influence something that you just have no idea. So I would just say, you know, make friends before you need them and be kind to people because it could make a big difference in your life. When I look back at some of the best introductions I had, they're from people that you would never expect who happen to know, oh, you're trying to meet this guy. I actually know him, you know, I've been working on his yard for 20 years. I can drop something off at his house or, you know, and you just never really thought about the person that way. So I guess my first piece of advice is, you know, mind your manners, be nice, be kind. Number two, always have your antenna up. Like you've always, you gotta, you know, don't walk around with your nose and your phone and with your earphones on. Look people in the eye, take in, use all your senses. Look, smell, listen. Like I think people kind of shut themselves off. Um, at Coca-Cola, the CEO challenged us in the state of Georgia where Coke is headquartered to find new uh, opportunities for uh, to sell more Coke. How can we do a better job? And you're thinking it's so saturated, like Coke sold in like over 200 countries around the world. How could we sell more in Georgia? But in fact, when you look at a town or a, uh, you know, if you take an isolated area and that's, and you're looking at all that through that lens, you can find a hundred new ways to do a better job promoting, marketing, you know, so if you can do it with Coke, you can do it with anything. So pay attention to your environment um, and, you know, be a student. You're always learning. You don't graduate and you're done with school. Like you're always a student and you need to ask questions. You need to look, you need to listen and you need to do your homework, you know, because when you're when you're fully prepared you can be more spontaneous but your antenna's got to be up to even recognize that that opportunity exists so you know get your nose out of your phone take your headphones off and pay attention um i guess well one more good piece of advice <laughs> i mean there's there's so many things that um you know, you can learn from anyone, anytime, you know, everybody has a gift and every encounter, try and learn something from everybody because you need to have like a growth mindset in life. Um, you know, how can you learn from like what might seem like a bad experience? Don't just shut down or blame the other person 
or act like, you know, it was whatever, I'm just going to forget it and move on. Probably there is something to learn from that. And you want to be able to be in a situation, not where you're like a fixed mindset where you act like you know it all, but have a growth mindset where you learn it all. Mm-hmm. Always be learning and growing in every aspect of your life because it'll be more interesting. You'll be smarter because of it. And it'll lead to more interesting, better outcomes. I just feel like the happiest, kind of most generous and successful people I know have more of a growth mindset because they don't see the world as a zero sum game. It's not like there's a pie with eight pieces and when the pieces are gone, game over. And if you get one piece, it means I, that's one that I can't have. I think the, the most successful people figure out how to bake more pies or how to cut it into smaller pieces so more people can participate. So I think you need to figure out how your success, your success in life is directly related to how successful other people around you are. You know, there's a saying that says, the rising tide raises all boats. Mm -hmm. Life is not a zero sum game. Um, If you win, it does not mean I lose. We can both win. Mm -hmm. So try and find those opportunities in life where everybody wins because you'll be happier, you'll be more successful. And I just think the world's gonna be better for it. So it sounds a little Pollyanna, but in my experience, I just think um, the best things in life happen when everybody benefits. Like you can't win at other people's expense for very long. It doesn't really work that way. Yeah. Well, the rest of those pieces of advice that you have so much of, that'll be coming out in your new book that's coming out next year, right? Right, Uh, You you can go to my website. I've written a lot (laughs) of little things, not a book. But I have a lot of little snippets on the website that share other pieces of, uh, of information and, yeah. and learnings. But yeah, I mean, I just think, you know, it's not rocket science. I, I really do think in my experience, you know, if you're nice and kind and you want to learn a lot and, you know, you have a, the right mindset. I think you can go pretty far in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, honestly, everything that you had to say was so helpful. And I really appreciate your time, Paige. Where can people find you? What's the best way for them to reach out besides LinkedIn? Is is it also just your website? Yeah, mavensandmoguls.com. It's spelled out M-A-V-E-N-S-A-N-D-M-O-G-U-L-S.com. And it's all there. You can contact me. You can read about all the things I've written about, you can hear me speak at stuff. And uh, yeah, Google me with a name like mine. um, It really is me when it pops up. So um, you can find me pretty easily. But thank you so much, Anthony. It's been great chatting with you. And um, I'm really thrilled that you found me. Thank you so much. No worries. You have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bye.